Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a podcast producer cooking things up for the flagrant family of shows on Patreon. Please welcome Kevin Bartell. Woohoo, it's me. <laughs> Hi. What's up, George? Thanks for having me. Happy to have you, man. Big fan of uh, all your work, not even just on flagrant ones, but, uh, you know, Big Grande's Teacher's Lounge, one of my faves. Uh, yeah. you, you had a hand in a, a lot of classics. Thanks very much. Yeah. yeah. Podcasts are fun. They sure are. <laughs> it's really hard to complain ever at all times about anything work related. <laughs> I sent my girlfriend a TikTok yesterday that was uh, like a guy being like, me complaining about my work and it was like a guy like kind of annoyed and then it says me at my work and it's like him on his phone laughing and i was <laughs> like yeah i can relate to that <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror in general you know if it's something that you dip into here and there or if it's something that you're a big fan of it's definitely a here and there thing as a kid i was always horrified of horror and i kind of blame everyone except me <laughs> <laughs> I grew up very Catholic, very religious, and I think that was kind of a, like, we don't watch these kind of movies. Um, but it was also kind of, like, really throwing my parents under the bus within, like, three minutes of this one. I think it was, like, maybe a combination of, like, I definitely did not grow up with, like, a movie-watching family, and there was probably other maybe smaller religious things that were never said out loud as well. Mm -hmm. Then I took some film classes in high school and college and then wanted to move to L.A. to be a screenwriter, to be like a TV writer. So I consumed like a ton of films in, in college, this being one of them. With horror, I was like kind of slowly dipping my toe in. And then I really kind of got into it with a friend when I moved to LA, he worked in like the makeup department for some shows, but was is a huge horror fan. And I think like gave me an appreciation of them kind of specifically just like the costumes and makeup and <laughs> hair. And just like, sometimes he would just pause something and then just go like, look at this, like, look at everything that went into this. And I was, and I, it kind of like, forced me to go like, wow, that is, I don't know, it's just stuff that you kind of, I wasn't really like clocking. Yeah. But also around Halloween, probably like many bandwagon sure. horror fans <laughs> around October, I'm like, sure, let, why not watch Hell yeah. Friday the 13th or whatever. But I don't know, they're fun. I am a huge scaredy cat, but I don't know, I think they're cool. I think there's a lot of correlation, and I know I'm not the first person to say this, between horror and comedy, you know, how they grab the audience. And uh, I don't know, I think it's very captivating and fun. Definitely so. And I think you're spot on about just like being able to just pause it and kind of admire like the movie magic. You know, I feel yeah. like there it is most explicit in horror movies because there's so much effects heavy stuff that still you know, is practical or whatever, or or just the, like you said, the costuming, uh, all the designs and stuff that skew away from humanoid or whatever. It, you know, people get to really uh, let their imaginations run wild. It is. I can't really think of other genres where you can do that. Maybe I mean, I'm sure you can do that with like a lot of movies, but it was like the first time where it was like, I don't know, you can you can watch horror movies with the sound off and still get like so much out of it. I just recently watched all of the, uh, what are they called? Army of Darkness, right? Yeah, the Evil Deads. And yes, the Evil Deads. Yeah. 
really enjoyed those as well. And it definitely has like a um, Midwesty kind of feel. I grew up in the outside of Chicago and it, I don't know, it just felt so like wandering through the woods and then like kind of being scared at the same time. And then you're just like running home. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in, I mean, literally in the opening sequence of not that uh, she's obviously doing like a training course, but just like the Virginia, like opening shots of silence of the lambs. I was like, Oh, I'm in just show me a creepy forest. And I'm like, all right, I'm already sold and scared. Yeah, I I noticed that as well. I thought it was really interesting that they do kind of start using the language of horror movies right away. Yeah. And and it's like a very foggy forest and it's very dense and she it's a woman running through. Yeah. But it instead of kind of using it as like an endurance test of fear, it's kind of subverted in a way where she's like using this as a way to center herself, clear her head. Uh, she's running the training course and everything. It's it's a really cool subversion immediately. I love the score in that too, and I love the like the text that like black and then the like white outline of oh, the yeah. of the text and stuff. I was I don't know. So I've not to just like jump around, but my my history with with this movie is I I seen it like once in maybe high school co- or college once like a year ago and was like wow I forgot like. <laughs> That this is a fantastic movie. And then once again last night and all three times really enjoyed it and got so much out of it each time. It's uh, It was a very fun watch. Hell yeah. So as far as your favorite subgenre of horror, I'm curious, especially for someone who did grow up with a, a religious impact uh, on their, their film going. Mm-hmm. Do you shy away from like demon movies or do those like really still get you? <laughs> I think it's the opposite. I think I'm like intrigued in like uh, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and stuff because yeah. it feels like naughty. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I had this like hardcore up up, up rooming, but they're mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, so, watching yeah. those movies do kind of gravitate me more because I feel like I have friends of friends that like it feels like the movie is based <laughs> off of. Yeah, I think I, I find those like more fascinating maybe for that reason those kind of like demons ones really spook me out it's funny Um, it really goes either direction you know you can never tell totally (laughs) the one that always i always hate is jump scare stuff Mm -hmm. which i'm kind of relieved it was probably another reason why i enjoyed this one is there's not really like any jump scares but People, I've I've watched horror movies with friends and often get made fun of because I'm I'm just a jumpy person. Kind of the joke sometimes when I'm driving with my girlfriend is like if a car makes a turn too close, I'll gasp. But <laughs> the reality is they were like 600 feet away, and then my girlfriend will be like, "What? What?" What happened? They're a block away. And I'm like, man, that was close. Um, I don't know why that is. I think I have like a very, I don't know what your experience with this is, but like those kind of early, like late 90s, early aughts videos where it was like, put the cursor through the maze on your <laughs> on your screen and then the face jumps out. Yes. Where like that car commercial where the, the zombie jumps out, you see the car driving and stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I saw... Too many of those at like eight. Yeah. And then was like, I hate scary stuff, <laughs> which sucked because I don't know. I think it's an amazing genre that I probably would have enjoyed more if I wasn't like, if I didn't have three scary <laughs> childhood experiences. Yeah. Prank culture ruined a generation of us. <laughs> yeah. They ruined a genera- generation of film. 
Yeah, so I, I I find the like demon stuff fun and interesting, and I think Rosemary's Baby is one of the most amazing movies. Same with Silence of the Lambs. But any stuff that's like, oh man, this one has so many like jump scares. I'm naturally like gonna go like, I mean, what if we did lunch? Like, you know, there's like a great spot around the street, and they'd be like, you live here. Like, what do you, what do you mean great spot? I don't know. I always get spooked with jump scary stuff more so than the average person. Mm -hmm. Even sometimes I'll watch a video on my phone. And if it's like a little scary, like a YouTube video, I'll pull it back from my face a little bit because I'm like, what if there's like a jump scare that happens? And and I'll just create like a full narrative like, man, they would really spook (laughs) me out if they did a jump scare in this. And then I'm like watching a video like three and a half feet away from my face. But I don't know. Maybe that's good for my eyes. Hey, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, as you've as you've mentioned, the movie we're talking about today is The Silence of the Lambs, based on the Thomas Harris book from 1988 and the second in the Hannibal the Cannibal series of books after Red Dragon, which is source material for the previous best horror movie ever made, Manhunter. <laughs> One thing that I discovered in my research for this movie is that apparently Thomas Harris hasn't given an interview since 1976. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> So good for you, Tom. Yeah, didn't he want like no involvement with this? And then like his only involvement was he gave like a bottle of wine to people that like were nominated for <laughs> the Oscars or something. You gotta respect it. He was just like fully hands off. Don't talk yeah. to me. Yeah. Living I in the want woods, no involvement books. with this. I gotta start doing stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know how I would. That would be actually people probably would not enjoy working with me if that was. <laughs> If I was just like, all right, do your thing, and then uh, I'll talk to you guys later. I'll give you a bottle of wine. They'd probably be like, fuck you. Yeah, it's, I'll say it's a lot harder now uh, when we're a lot more connected than you know, yes. 1976 yeah. when he's like, don't write me letters. There's really no excuse. <laughs> oh, I missed your call. <laughs> Does Silence of the Lambs get solved with the cell phone? One of the many horror <laughs> questions. <laughs> Yes, it's a classic question. Uh, she probably uh, no, I think no, because she got knocked out. So there you go. Yeah, he would have he would have thrown away her her phone. So yep, sorry, movie's still good. <laughs> but uh, even before the novel was out, Gene Hacksaw Hackman was uh, interested in being a part of this adaptation. So he was working with Orion Pictures to split the rights, five hundred thousand dollars between the two parties, and Hackman was going to direct and possibly play Jack Crawford. By coincidence, not knowing that, I watched the Royal Tenenbaums the night Ooh, before, classic, and and then was just like thinking about like this <laughs> character like in that movie, and was like, eh, I'm kind of glad this didn't work out. Like I'm sure it would have been fine, but yeah, I don't know. I think it worked out. No, I, I agree. I I, I think uh, look, no no heat against uh, Gene. He's great, but yeah. Uh, I think the movie works perfectly. He was going to play Jack Crawford, you said? Yeah. And it's Scott Glenn. I thought that guy was good, too. I thought he was uh, kind of creepy. Yeah. Like, if I was seeing this movie in theaters in 91, my first thought would be like, that's the killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he is uh, like kind of leering mm-hmm. uh, in a way that I think is uh, pretty deliberate and, and does do a really good job of kind of making all of the people in this movie kind of feel like predators to, to yeah. Jodie Foster's character. Totally. Now, Dino De Laurentiis still had the rights to the character Hannibal Lecter, but since Manhunter flopped incredibly hard, Dino wasn't interested in pursuing it any further, and he loaned them the rights for free. So nice, nice, uh, nice thing by Dino. Wow. And you said that Manhunter was like the prequel to this. So not prequel. Yeah. It. It. Mm-hmm. it uh, Hannibal Lecter is uh, like a figure in both of the stories. It's yes. a different like uh, agent. 
working with him, but and a different serial killer that they're chasing. But he's like the consultant in both of them. Got it. And uh, it's great. Michael Mann. It's incredible. It's interesting because part of what is so unique about it compared to this movie is that this is very grounded, very deliberately. You're supposed to feel the pain of it and everything. But yeah. Manhunter is very expressionistic. It's a lot of deep hues and, and bright fluorescent colors and stuff. It's really great as well. Both are fantastic in their own right. It just, cl- okay, it just clicked for me. This is very embarrassing, but I'm still going to admit it. And I apologize. I kept thinking, because I kept seeing Manhunter and like discussions about this. I was thinking of the TV show Mindhunter, which I think is on Netflix. <laughs> and I was, yeah, the I was like, uh, I, yeah, I guess that it's, and I was so baffled by, I was like, yeah, okay, but uh, completely different thing, completely different title. Makes more sense now. There you go. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, I recommend uh, Manhunter as well if you haven't seen it. Great. This guy named Ted Talley, he's future story consultant for Shrek 2, which made me laugh. Wow. <laughs> That um, rocks. You yeah. can you can tell. You can tell. <laughs> the seeds are here. Yeah. There's a lot of like uh, smash mouth like sprinkled throughout. Sure. I mean, also when Shrek looks directly into camera and says, I am the Zodiac killer. Uh-huh. And does that <laughs> sound. <laughs> that was weird. It was. It was very strange. But who can say we didn't see it coming looking back? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. I agree. And so Ted had kind of plateaued as a playwright. He said, this is his own admission. And he said that he became a quote, literary carpenter taking mm-hmm. other people's novels and adapting them pretty straightforwardly into, into screenplays. And this works really well for Silence of the lambs. And he just wanted to put the book on screen. So he gives a lot of credit for the quality of the screenplay back to Harris, but teamwork makes the dream work. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it needs to be a lot of people thought this movie or the book would be unfilmable. And so yeah. making it work in a screenplay form for Demi to uh, then put on screen uh, is no small feat. Yeah. Didn't he, I heard too, like Demi, like changed some parts of it too, to make it work. Like there is like a love interest or something with Clarice too. And they like cut that, which I thought was smart. I thought that was kind of cool that he was just like, yeah, some of these parts are like a little weird and unnecessary, so we're just going to like not do that shit. Yeah, <laughs> trim the fat, yeah. Yeah. With Scott Glenn's character, like his wife is in a coma, and so yeah. there's like uh, possibly romantic interest between him and Clarice. And uh-huh. I agree. I think it's smart to just kind of get rid of that plot line. Yeah, it's like not needed. Also, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> not me. My experience with Jonathan Demi was first the... Oh, no, not, not first, but... um. So I, I did see, yeah, this movie like 15 years ago. And then last year when I was working on the You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head podcast, they did the uh, Stop Making Stop Sense. Making sense. My, yeah. Uh, wrong way. There we go. Stop oh, hell sense. yeah. yeah. Look, holy shit. <laughs> he's got a tattoo he's showing me, I listeners. Do, yes, That's they, awesome. And so I was kind of like getting into Talking Heads during the recording of that podcast. And, and then they talked about him directing that performance. And I was like, holy shit. That's... And then I think after that, it was when I watched, rewatched Silence of the Lamps and was like, wow, this guy just, <laughs> he does everything. It was pretty cool. What's interesting is that even though they're so completely different, mm-hmm. there is still like elements of his style that you can see in both because even in Stop Making Sense, again, very stripped down, not a lot of audience shots, which is very deliberate. Yeah. It's focused on just the core stuff that you need to know in order to get the best movie possible. Yeah, I love it. They, they'd they gotten an early copy of the book from Harris. So they were making serious headway on the draft even before the book had come out. But 
Hackman reading the script that they had was like, this is actually too violent. I'm not interested. Yeah, anymore. he backs out. <laughs> it's like, this is nuts. And then didn't he already do some other movie too that was like a little, that was also a little violent. And then he was like, I don't want to do like a couple of violent movies all in a row. Like that's yeah. not really me. Look, Hackman, it's right in the name, dude. I was gonna, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had the clues all along, <laughs> Mr. Hackman. <laughs> so Orion is scrambling to get funding and a new director, but they tell Ted, Hey, don't worry about it. We'll handle this. And you keep on writing. And true to their word, they sent Demi a copy of the book. He signs on pretty close to as the first draft is finishing up. And when he read it, there weren't a ton of big changes. Like you said, he trimmed some stuff back. Yeah. This is another benefit of Ted's self-described workman style of adaptation, as opposed to feeling the need to add a bunch of his own junk that changes the story and pacing. Mm -hmm. Now, like I said, Demi had an interesting filmography up to this point. Stop making sense, of course. And a cage cheat was how he started working with Roger Corman, which I Mm -hmm. think does help to influence that stripped down nature. Corman is famous for working on very, very low budget productions. And so when you only have so much money, you go, well, put what we need on screen. Yeah. Very economical. Definitely. And Demi is quoted as saying, every director's dream is to make a film more terrifying than anything he's ever seen. And this is his effort. I think that it works. It, It is very scary. And it's Part of the effectiveness is how scary it is without putting too much on screen. A hundred percent. And I think that's why I love it too, because if it was as someone that's like kind of a baby to horror, if there was like a ton that we were seeing, I think I would have like been like, um, about that lunch <laughs> we were discussing, they'd be like, drop the lunch, Kev. But um, when I was watching it last night, like one thing that I said, like, oh, I love that is they don't show the picture that was like, this is what he did to the nurse. They yeah. were mostly able to reconstruct her jaw and we don't see it. I was like, I love this. Like, that's mm-hmm. so, so awesome. Yeah. Just the glint of his eye in the red. Yeah. Really, the big killing that we see is not until he's in like the like that birdcage with the two cops, I think. And that's not till like an hour and like 15 minutes in. Like we really don't see, besides the bodies throughout, we don't really see an actual like killing until like more than halfway through the movie. Yeah. And and even those are just like a quick shot of the photograph. Yep. Demi specifically said that what drew him to the story was that it was a a grisly, cold, appalling view of the human condition but Mm -hmm. also rather a deeply humanistic story. It dares to present in the bullet spewing nineties, the idea that the effort to save the life of one person is worthy of a movie. And I think that that absolutely carries through to the whole tone of it. You know, totally. It's it's not just about flash. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And also I think like an interesting thing about it too, is Buffalo Bill didn't realize that he was kidnapping a senator's daughter (laughs) which kind of justifies why like the whole military is and like our fbi is like involved with this like Mm -hmm. it becomes like a national story and stuff too which i think was concerned yes exactly and so uh they interviewed him at the top of a snow mountain or whatever it was like he was skiing and was like i'm very concerned but i yeah kind of like adds some more like oh okay we can kind of see why like this is national news and like so many people are involved, but uh, yeah. it's pretty fascinating. One piece of the collaboration that permeates the movie is a, a phrase from the screenplay that describes the results of the attack in the cell 
as a snapshot from hell. Mm -hmm. And uh, Demi found this to be a particularly engaging vagary. Mm -hmm. And he said that he was striving for that in every encounter with the killer's handiwork. Mm -hmm. And to that end, you know, there's an emphasis on snapshot. Every shot where even it was just like a, a photo of the photos of the victims uh, they paid a lot of attention to the timing. They weren't filling up on fake outs either. Tally said there's not a flash of blood that wasn't debated over for hours. Jonathan didn't want the cheap shots, the door slamming or the cat crying to make the audience jump. The real shocks here are enough. And yes, they are. Yeah. And I think uh, so much of it, too, is like Anthony, like the conversations, like the few scenes between Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, like really that is so much of it is like. I read something about like him being compared to like reptiles and snakes. Like he's, he like consciously decides when he's going to blink like for every shot and yeah. uh, read the script like over a hundred times or something. So he had it like basically all of his stuff completely memorized before they even started filming. And to me, that is like more unsettling than like a bloody gory scene. It's just like the way he's like looking like down the barrel basically <laughs> and like talking to her and stuff. And once I read that thing about him, like not blinking too, then I like couldn't not think about it in an unsettling way and was like, man, uh, really when you have an incredible performance like this, you don't need, like you said, like a bunch of flash and blood and unnecessary gore yeah and he said that he took that from charles manson that lack of blinking <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, my god checks out <laughs> yep i believe that wow in addition to the limited actual violence on screen they also made an effort to avoid sensationalizing the crimes tally described it as quote death in this movie is real and it's pathetic and it's depressing mm -hmm. when you see a movie where 250 people are blown up in one shot that cheapens things it's mm -hmm. pornographic when someone dies in a movie just so that the leading man can say some one-liner Again, very grounded. This is real. We want to feel the emotional impact of what's happening, not just uh, walk it off and say, well, what a fun movie. Yeah, well, that person died anyway. Exactly. Yeah, it feels very intentional with like their decisions and like kind of focusing on the emotional arc and stuff and like the empathy of these characters more so than just like gore and killing. And th there's uh, totally a way to do this movie with a different... It wasn't like maybe Ridley Scott being considered or something or, or it was like it would have been a completely different movie or like way more violent. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can tell with with Demi that it's a lot more like emotion driven. Definitely. And that carries through to the music as well. It's composed by the famous Howard Shore, who people might know from Lord, Lord of the Rings, among others. And uh, this is performed by the Munich Symphony Orchestra. So they got the wow. real, <laughs> real thing. And cool. uh, Demi... Demi and Shore worked to fold the music into the fabric of the movie by having, quote, an attendant sadness instead of something more ostentatious. So there you go. That makes sense. I just rewatched all of the um, Lord of the Ring movies a couple weeks ago, the extended cuts. Oh, yeah. It took 12 hours because each extended cut is four hours and uh, just bought the first book now. But oh, yeah. now I'm going to have to go back and I didn't know it's the same composer. I'm going to have to go back and listen to more of his stuff. He's fantastic. And yeah, I'm very familiar with the runtime of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> because Every year, me and my friends do uh, sort of a case race kind of thing where uh, starting with the first one, you have uh, until the end of the Return of the King to drink a 30 uh, rack of beers. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. So it's a uh, that sounds fun. It is a lot of fun. And uh, it's challenging. It's only, uh, <laughs> people have only won one time. So, yeah, I would say it's challenging <laughs> for, for casting. 
Jodie Foster was fighting to be cast as Clarice Starling after reading the book, but Demi wasn't sure she was right. He wanted Michelle Pfeiffer and mm-hmm. then Meg Ryan and then Laura Dern. Wow. That would have been interesting. Yeah. But Pfeiffer and Ryan were both nervous about the content and the studio didn't think Laura Dern was a bankable star. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. But since Jodie was so passionate about the role and Clarice was what had drawn Demi to the movie as well, he acquiesced. And of course, the rest is history with her knocking it out of the park. This is why I could not be an actor. Like, if I knew that the director wanted three other people before me, I think my ego is too sensitive that I'd be like, you know what? Just fuck it. Like, yeah, I don't know how, like, if I was, I guess the, obviously the podcast world is way smaller, but if I found out like, um, and I'm sure it's happened before, but if I found out I was like the fourth pick for a producer (laughs) role, I'd be like, maybe I'm not the guy for this. Like you guys clearly want someone else for this. So I guess tip of the hat to actors for having a strong enough ego to deal with that every, all the time. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess uh, it, it helps that she wanted to play this part so badly. Maybe every time she was like, fuck yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, as far as Lecter, Demi was very pleased with himself when he whipped out this pun and said, it's a delicious part. It's just scrumptious. Yeah, there's a few like kind of corny jokes like that throughout that was like, he's just your taste. Excuse me. It's like, okay. All right, guy. <laughs> he said, I don't think the fact that he's a practicing cannibal is what people found appealing. But the way his mind works, the way he expresses himself, that is rare, rare, rare. It's critical you feel he's not only the smartest person in the movie, but the smartest person in the world. He originally pursued Sean Connery for Lecter. What a trip that would be. Hello, Michelle. Imagine this movie with like Meg Ryan and Sean Connery. (laughs) Oh, my God. So weird. Oh, man. That would truly be uh, bizarre. Yeah. Other actors in the conversation were Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Derek Jacoby, Forrest Whitaker, which would have been, I think, pretty interesting. That's cool. Yeah, that would have been cool. And uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. But ultimately, based on the way Anthony Hopkins played the doctor in The Elephant Man, offered it to him. Yeah. I love Jodie Foster in this so much. A A thing that really takes me out of movies is when it clearly seems like a famous person is like portraying the role like some uh there is what's called the haunting of hill house like mm-hmm. that show uh th- whatever the sequel that just came out like over the around halloween uh, bly manor i think something like that yeah though yeah. so i couldn't get past the first episode because I, I i kept saying like man if i was in this like neighborhood i would constantly be go like wow, you should like move to Los Angeles. You're like so attractive and captivating like to every single person. Like, what are you doing in this town? Like, you should move to LA and be a model or an actor or something. Like, Get away from these ghosts. Yeah, I mean, and Jodie Foster is like a beautiful, captivating person, but she just seems so like real in this that I'm not thinking at all like, oh, wow, look at Jodie Foster. I'm just like, believe Clarice. I, I, I just... Uh, so, uh, so many movies I watch, I just get taken out of so quickly because it's just like, it looks like a movie. I don't know. Sure. I mean, it's like when people talk about like the rock movies or Ryan Reynolds movies, they're totally. like, oh, that's Ryan Reynolds on screen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or like Seth Rogen or something. It's just like you, you can't not think of the actor. And yeah. I don't know this. I just I loved the casting in this because it all just seemed so believable. They disappear under the roles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The influences that Hopkins pulled into his performance were, like I said, Charles Manson for his weird habits. The voice of 2001's Hal, which is Douglas Rain. Mm-hmm. And uh, though a, a lot of people thought his cadence was based on Catherine Hepburn, 
He said it's actually Truman Capote was the wow. uh, influence there. Cool. Since they had to replace Hackman as Crawford, they went with Scott Glenn, like we said, who I think mm-hmm. does a really good job of creating a balanced character. He is creepy in moments. He is sympathetic in moments. He feels like a person. Yeah. And is like not as big of a role as I remembered, like in this viewing, like he is in it throughout and obviously like in the end, but I kind of feel like he just has like, uh, I don't know, everyone always talks about like Anthony Hopkins is in the role for X amount of minutes or whatever. And obviously Scott Glenn isn't like as big of a role, but I just kind of like these characters that just kind of drop in and out throughout the movie like that. It was like sets up a little bit, checks in a little bit later. I'm like, this is perfect. Oh, yeah. He uh, met with John Douglas, one of the originators of criminal profiling to prepare, which included a tour of Quantico and listening to an audio tape made by serial killers in action, which he found very affecting, he said. Wow. Ted Levine plays our killer. James Gum, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill. Mm hmm. Incredible, incredible performance. Yeah. I was reading an interview and there was a funny quote where Brooke Smith, who plays Catherine Martin, said, I read with the three final guys who are going to be Buffalo Bill. And when Ted walked in, it was so crazily obvious. I asked him, (laughs) what the hell did you do in that audition? You were so amazing. And he said, well, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I just drank a lot of coffee. Wow. (laughs) Now that now that that feels more relatable for me for uh the podcast world like yeah i just panicked and i slammed three espressos and had a 45 minute live panic attack and now you're buffalo bill baby yeah i'm not super familiar with ted levine i don't have like as deep of a film knowledge as maybe people would assume living in california but i was curious like does a role like this not hurt his career because it obviously was like this is one of the biggest movies of all time, but like this role is so specific and captivating. Do you get like maybe typecast or something, or does like everyone just kind of see you as this character in a way that maybe everyone's just like, oh, it's the Buffalo Bill guy? Yeah, I don't, yeah. I, don't know. I mean, it, he he definitely feels that way. Well, first of all, he said he doesn't even like horror movies. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. <laughs> so they were like, when was the last time you watched Silence of the Lambs? He was like, I never watched it. I'm so scared. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> I like that. But then on top of that, he said that he feels less inclined to revisit it. And he's very grateful for what it did for his career. Like you said, it, it was a huge, huge movie. But yeah, people come up to him and go, oh, my boyfriend tucks his dick behind his legs and goes, oh, look, I'm the fucking Silence of the Lambs guy. And he goes, well, yeah. what? okay, cool. What am I supposed Thanks, to do? Thanks, man. Uh, yeah. And so I'm going to get the hamburger with... Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at his filmography. He's worked pretty steady since 91. So it's amazing. He's in Flubber. I love Heat. I forgot he's in that. Okay, so never mind. I was kind of... I love me getting concerned about like millionaire actors like, but is he okay? And then I click it. It's like, dude's been in 40 movies since that. And it's like, yeah, okay. he's, he's fine, survived. Kev. Don't worry. Don't lose any sleep over good old Ted. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, he's, he's phenomenal in it. Gum is a bit of an amalgamation with the kidnapping mm-hmm. execution inspired by Bundy, the skinning for a human suit inspired by Ed Gein, and mm-hmm. the pit for the victims from Gary Heidnick. And uh, one telling story from Lavina in his prep, he said, I talked to a lovely, probably five foot one Hispanic guy in drag and bought him a drink and then asked, why do you do this? And he said, when I'm a dude on the street, I'm just a little Puerto Rican motherfucker. When I'm here, I'm a hot Latina mama. And it struck me that it was about power. And for gum, 
it was the same impetus, but it became psychotic. It was donning the cloak of feminine power. And that is what it was all about for him when he was approaching the role. Yeah. Brooke prepared for the role by locking herself in a closet in her parents' basement. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. Who hasn't been there? Hey, we all, yeah, we all approach roles differently. She said, I think I stayed longer than I wanted to. It was probably just a couple hours, but it was trying to see exactly what it would feel like. I imagine he didn't leave the light on when he left. Probably true. (laughs) They filmed the basement scenes in what was once a giant airplane turbine factory in Uh in Pittsburgh. There you go. (laughs) And uh, the set was multi-level. So Smith would enter the pit through a trap door at the bottom, which would open up. And uh, she said, I think I really messed with my own head to do those scenes. I remember being aware that the camera was there and thinking... I'm in all this agony, and not only is no one helping me, but they're actually filming me. I literally felt it. I did a number on myself. So mm-hmm. guess putting yourself in the closet worked. <laughs> <laughs> that isolation paid off. Yeah. The movie released on Valentine's Day, 1991. Pretty funny. Very romantic. <laughs> and uh, it shot to number one and stayed there for five weeks, presumably because uh, the movie got going quickly and they could capitalize on the fervor around the new book. Wow. It grossed $273 million on its budget of $19 million, making it the fifth highest grossing film of 1991, a year filled with stiff competition like T2, Beauty and the Beast, Cape Fear, many others. Jeez. Yeah. Incredible year for movies. And uh, Ebert, typically not a horror fan, he loved this one. He deemed it a horror masterpiece and he wasn't alone. Silence of the Lambs is one of just 43 movies nominated for the, quote, Big Five Academy Awards, and one of just three that actually won them. Their Best Picture, Best Director for Demi, Best Actor for Hopkins, Best Actress for Foster, and Best Adapted Screenplay for Ted Talley. Wow, that's insane. I don't really care about award stuff. I think it's kind of obnoxious, uh, but I do think that's very impressive. (laughs) Sure, And, and it's interesting, too, because so many people feel like horror isn't well represented in the Oscars. Oh, totally. Which is true. It is true. Yes. And uh, even more so the ones that like do get nominated, people really have to like fight to be like, no, it is a horror movie. And Silence of the Lambs, I feel like is the one that no one ever questions. They're always like, yes, that is straight up a horror movie of the ones that have uh, performed well. Yeah. It's kind of like in a league of, I think, movies that are, looked at as one of the greats and and therefore like because it's one of the greats people are like well yeah it doesn't count as horror (laughs) because it's one of the greats it's up there with like your godfathers and stuff and uh it's like no it's still a horror movie though (laughs) i don't know i kind of think I've seen this with like other things too of um, when something is considered like a classic, then they try to like pull it out of the genre and be like, well, it's just one of, it's just really good. (laughs) It's like, well, it's still a horror movie though. Like it's, that doesn't just because it's incredible. Does not mean it's now like not in that (laughs) genre anymore? I don't know. Yeah. They go, I don't like horror movies, but I liked that movie. Yeah. Instead of going, well, maybe I just like certain horror movies, they go, well, that just means that that's not a horror yeah. movie. Yeah. It's like trying to change the name of the movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I like Quiet Sheep. No, that's not what it's called. No, I know, but like I liked it. So it's Quiet Sheep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it's whatever I say it is. Yeah. It was actually also nominated for two other Academy Awards, sound and editing, but those lost out to T2 and JFK, respectively. Wow. 
And uh, as the years have gone on, the film's staying power is impressive, making several mm-hmm. prestigious lists of greatest films and greatest villains and even best horror movie ever made right here on this podcast. Wow. Look at that. Look at the, that. the only list that matters. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So uh, to get into the plot of the movie, like we said, it opens up with this uh, uh, woman navigating the woods in a dense fog. But a messenger says Crawford wants to see you in his office. And so this woman... Clarice Starling mm-hmm. heads back to the FBI Academy. She clearly knows the building intimately based on the speed in which she navigates it. But these, un- I got to talk about these uniforms that they're wearing. So strange and funny to me, just a sea of nerds and various solid color khakis or solid color polos and khakis. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was weird to me at first when it was like just everyone wearing blue, but yeah. then when I was like, oh, some groups are red and some yeah. are blue. What the hell My, my favorite trope too is Clarice has got like the gray like sweater on that has like a massive amount of sweat and like the <laughs> neck area. And uh, watch the trailer for the Tom Hanks movie Money Pit. You'll see the same thing with his armpits where it's like, good God. <laughs> like, I don't know. There was a thing where like, I don't know who would... If that's like costume or like props or like who who whoever is in charge like in the eighties and nineties of like spraying sweat onto people just like w- kept going and it's just like hey I get it like she's doing like an impressive workout she's probably she's definitely breaking a sweat but for it to be a massive amount of sweat just in like the throat area and like that's <laughs> it I don't know I love nineties sweat because it's yeah. always specific and massive. <laughs> I heard that the problem was that in the 90s, they did it with like a pepper mill and they were like, tell me when. And no one ever knew when to say when. Sure. They're like, I guess keep going. I don't know. (laughs) It feels like they're just like spraying them with the hose and saying, tell me when. It gets the hose again. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) It's a a great shot as she enters the elevator. Oh, totally. She's much smaller and everyone is kind of staring at her as she finds a place for herself among them. There's like a dozen different, we were talking earlier about in horror, just like pausing a a shot and just saying, just look at this. That was more for like the horror of like, look at this zombie, look at this fucking zombie. And then just kind of breaking down like head to toe. But this movie alone, like that shot right there, I was never really like a movie poster college dorm guy, but you could fill up a whole dorm with like a dozen different shots from this movie. And that's one of them. It's also just like a very like, I don't know, empowering scene. Like, I think a lot of this is about being a woman in a male dominated industry or like employment. And, uh, and this shot within 60 seconds shows that. And, Definitely. uh, and it shows that throughout the movie. And we we're talking about like the emotional arcs of characters. And I don't know, this character is just phenomenal. And that shot is one of the ways that they show it. Yeah. I uh, should probably caution people that if you do fill up your dorm room with like 12 posters from this movie, <laughs> people will probably call the cops. <laughs> it's a really good movie. That guy that never blinks has a bunch of uh, Silence of the Lambs posters and he doesn't have a roommate. He's the only guy here who doesn't have a roommate. <laughs> he did once. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now, while looking for Crawford, she pokes her head into Lawrence Burroughs's office and he tells her to wait in Crawford's office. But also on the board in there, you can see a few breadcrumbs like the word skins underlined twice, three arrows pointing at it, two asterisks and Uh the word signature written under it, just in case you couldn't tell. Yeah. And uh, like E.E. Cummings quote or something on the chalkboard, too. And pretty corny, (laughs) pretty corny up top. (laughs) Says like clues, question mark. (laughs) 
Well, it's funny because at, like after they had that, I was like, surely on the evidence wall, there will be red strings and shit. Of like, course. Yeah. And then there wasn't. And I was like, oh, what I know. Hell? Missed opportunity. Definitely. My girlfriend, Leah, loved the um, walking past the guy holding entire cup of uh, pot of coffee, <laughs> <laughs> like pouring it into his mug. But she was just like, I love the like holding entire pot guy. <laughs> like we got to bring that back into hell movies. Yeah. She gets into this office. She sees the evidence board full of Buffalo Bill's crimes, including grody photos, article clippings, and the like. But director Jack Crawford finally arrives. We learn a bit more about Starling, Clarice M., uh, like a characterizing anecdote that also creates a link to Crawford. Now that's efficiency. Yeah, and like this exhausted trope, maybe not as bad in 91, but I'm sure there's a hundred examples of it of like, let's look at the resume and then like goes through like why this person's qualified and yeah. man, has that gotten annoying like throughout cinema history, but uh, uh, top 25% of your class. Eh? Yeah. I still gave you an A, A minus sure. <laughs> I do also like, you know, while they're doing that though, less explicitly we also get some of her like nervous habits that humanize yeah. her like she's fiddling with her earring and everything it yeah. does help to make her feel a little more real man would you want to wear earrings while doing that boot camp i'd be a little <laughs> paranoid that i would like get snagged on something but yeah. uh i don't Running know. around in the woods yeah at least it's not a hoop <laughs> yep that's true <laughs> he's got an interesting errand for her that's why you called her in they're interviewing all the serial killers they have in custody to create a profile but hannibal won't cooperate so they want her to take a crack at him Again, this performance, I love when he asks, do you spook easily? Incredible delivery. Yeah. And he warns her to be careful not to deviate from protocol, not to tell him anything personal because you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. Ironic, since this guy was a psychiatrist. Yeah. And don't worry, that will uh, go away immediately. (laughs) (laughs) She'll tell him all of her deepest, darkest secrets. Very cool audio equivalent of a match shot where Crawford says, never forget what he is. And she says, what's that? And then it oh, comes yeah. to that uh, was awesome. Yeah. The Baltimore State Forensic Hospital. Dr. Chilton. That's right. He says very casually, oh, he's a monster, pure psychopath, our most prized asset from a research point of view. I'd like to see that in more movies. Like that was a really fun editing sequence. And another thing I listened. So I watched it last night and then I rewatched the first like uh, 30 minutes today. But I used AirPods instead of just like watching it on the TV. Mm. And when she's walking through the hallways in the beginning, her like coworker that she talks to throughout it says Clarice, but the ADR is so obvious that I like <laughs> had to stop what I was doing and like rewind it because <laughs> the uh, just the audio is so clearly like in a studio where her lips are like touching the microphone. <laughs> it's like so intimate and so like muted, uh-huh. uh, like zero reverb. But then the shot is her walking through this very like echoey brick hallway where all of the audio is like all over the place. And then hearing this ADR that says Clarice, that sounds like in a completely different location. Literally just one word, but uh, had to shout it out. Yeah, uh, (laughs) caught my ear immediately. (laughs) Chilton, huge scumbag. Yeah. Obviously views Lecter as just an object and not only an object, but also one he can use to prosper. He also hits on Clarice immediately, which makes her visibly uncomfortable. Yeah. Great, like, angle, too. I mean, Demi just is so good. Like, we were talking about, like, the uh, uh, the economy of his shots. Just, like, able to get so much out of, like, literally just a close-up of him. A little, like, a downward angle at him. And he's just kind of, like, 
has this cockiness to him, so like great, yeah, <laughs> this smugness, and then it's just like, have you? Are you staying the night in Baltimore? And just like, oh god, it's so annoying in a way that I was like, great, we didn't need this huge <laughs> shot of him, like or like what mannerisms he's doing and stuff. It's just like we're just gonna point the camera right at you, and you're just gonna be a creep. Yeah, yeah. Even the fact that he describes himself as the right guide, <laughs> he's yeah. so cocky. It's so gross. He thinks that Crawford is using Clarice as bait since Lecter hasn't seen a woman in eight years and quote, are you ever his taste, so to speak, which is kind of a funny line. Yes. Yeah. He gives her the lowdown on the rules. And like you said, he tells her this story about why they're strict. One time Lecter complained of chest pains. And when they removed the mouth guard for an EKG, he fucked up the nurse. And like, yeah, he shows Clarice the photo, which we don't see. Yeah. Let's your imagination do the work says they managed to reset her jaw more or less, save one of her eyes. His pulse never got above 85, even when he ate her tongue. You know, writing- been a, you know what would have been an amazing reveal? There, this should have been like the SNL parody that week it came out is um, this is what it looked like after the surgery or whatever. And it cuts to him doing like a, a stick hand drawing of it. <laughs> like it's his like depiction of it, but he's like a, has the artist ability of like a four-year-old like that would have been a great reveal of like this is what it looks like it's just like a classic like line with more lines in, in like football. a sad face with a little tear <laughs> that would have been she's awesome. looking good she's looking good <laughs> clarice says hey if lector feels like you're his enemy maybe we'll do better if you fuck off and mm-hmm. uh this is you know something that does come back her willingness to head into the lion's den alone to prove herself yeah Nice uh, pan around the cells, really let us soak in the environment. 360 degrees resting back on Barney. We love Barney. Mm -hmm. Barney rocks. (laughs) Gives her some encouragement. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) He's uh, he's past the others, the last cell. And as she walks, the rest of the killers react in different ways. Uh, A simple high and silence for the characters named Friendly Psychopath and Brooding Psychopath, Mm -hmm. respectively. Yep. Very nice of them. And Miggs is here, famous multiple Miggs, and his equally famous line that I don't feel the need to repeat. If you know, then you know. If you don't, go watch the movie. So I I read that, I don't know if they reshot it, but like obviously Hannibal Lecter has like a a glass instead of bars. Mm -hmm. And I think they like tried to film it with bars, but felt like it was like getting in the way too much. Do the other criminals also have like glass or did they have bars? And then just he has the glass. Wow. I didn't even think about that. I think that they did have bars. That is very strange. I didn't even notice. Yeah. I think Demi said like it was like you couldn't really get. The spookiness, sure, the scariness of him. So they, I think, maybe <laughs> maybe reshot it with the glass, but yeah. they didn't do that for everyone else. <laughs> and there in the last cell is Hannibal Lecter, waiting for her calmly, standing in the center of his cell. Surrounding him is some very impressive drawings he's done of hand studies and architecture right next to demons and death. Mm-hmm. And the immediacy of how terrifying he is is remarkable. The way he says, closer. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Whoa. And it's so quiet, too. Like, uh makes me like itch i don't know it's like just just so creepy and he quickly identifies her as a crawford lackey and he looks at her id and he notices the temporary nature but he's still willing to hear her out and uh, she is indeed slippery about answering questions about herself as she was warned to do Uh, and Lecter does note this but she's honest when he asks about what mig said so that impresses him and he's willing to sort of hear her out yeah I'll correct myself and say it's not a quietness, it's a calmness. Like like you were saying, too, with the uh, his heart rate never went above 85, which how did they? <laughs> they so he like kills this woman and then they're like, 
We got to check this guy's heart rate immediately. <laughs> just, just check. <laughs> this woman's about to die, but we got to check, like, is he over 100? <laughs> is he above 120? Nope, 85. Uh, I yeah, his calmness was specifically, is he was like, check it. Look, I'm only at 85. <laughs> <laughs> Hello? Does anyone want to look at this? Guinness. <laughs> Guinness. Now, he doesn't want to do the questionnaire, but he also isn't ready to let her leave. He turns the conversation to the new serial killer on the block. Buffalo Bill. This name started as a bad joke about the size of his victims by Kansas City Homicide, who said this one likes to skin his humps. Weird. Clarice thinks Bill skins them for a trophy. Mm-hmm. Hannibal doesn't seem so sure, but throws her off by asking for the questionnaire. And uh, the little wink he does when he starts to flip through is like the funniest thing in the movie. Mm-hmm. God, I love this premise so much of like, I'm normally not a like, uh, yeah, let's watch serial killer shit. I don't like serial killer podcast. Yeah. But the idea of like using one to find another, which which is what this is based off of, right? I, I don't know. I just think it's so unique. And mm-hmm. I kind of would like to watch more movies that had this type of like premise. I mean, uh, there you go, man. Manhunter. <laughs> Yeah, they're okay, great. But even like a superhero movie or something would be kind of cool with like using one villain to like decipher another villain would be interesting. Sure, I don't know. I just like this. Like we, we're going to use the this bad person's expertise to help mm. us. Is that not what Suicide Squad is? There we go. There we go. We figured it out. Suicide Squad is the silence of the lambs of the DC <laughs> universe. <laughs> I stand Pete Davidson's uh, portrayal. There we go. There we go. Mm-hmm. Hannibal is disgusted by the lack of elegance in the test, and he lashes out at her. Oh, you look like a damn rube descended from white oh, trash in God. West Virginia. I didn't catch that until I rewatched it this morning of like, wow, he really called her a rube. <laughs> bring back rube. Yeah, bring back rube. Seriously. <laughs> That's like his like kind of opening dig is calling her a rube. I was like, oh, this rocks. <laughs> What's your father, a coal miner, he says. That would be my, like, that would be one of my 12 posters is like, you're a rube. <laughs> Quote, unquote, Hannibal, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> Let's get that t-shirt running. <laughs> Clarice gives one last effort and Lecter shuts it down. This is where we get the famous line. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> yep. Love it. Fly back to school now, little starling. And he turns back around. Conversation over. Mm-hmm. Miggs, not content with simple verbal discourtesy, tricks her into looking at him and then throws semen in her face. Uh, Lecter is furious and to apologize on Miggs's behalf, says he won't do the test, but he will offer her a chance for advancement with a clue. Look for an old patient of mine, Miss Moffat. God, one of the most horrifying sequences in film. Absolutely <laughs> disgusting. Ugh. I hated it. And I forgot that it's like within the first five minutes of the movie. I was like, Jesus Christ, I was not ready for that. But anyway, it's also it's super effective in terms of like Hannibal's whole thing about like courtesy and everything. When you put him next to Miggs, we're like, oh, of course, Hannibal is the good guy compared, which makes it so much more surprising when he turns it off and starts being a serial killer himself. Yeah. Yeah, that isn't that like a big thing with him too was like he wanted to kill mean people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he said uh discourtesy is unspeakably ugly to him. He said if you don't so. tip twenty percent. <laughs> He's sort of a Dexter in this way. Yep. Outside, Clarice cries and flashes back to her childhood where we see her father 
not a coal miner, as Lecter derisively presumed, but a police officer that Clarice idolized. And it's an interesting sort of fly in the ointment here where maybe he's not as smart and penetrating as he seems. Maybe they can get one over on him. And we see that that does actually work when they offer him the fake offer later. It kind of has its roots here in this scene where she sees that he doesn't necessarily know everything. Yeah. The like flashbacks to the funeral and stuff. I don't know. I, I This might be a thing where I need to like rewatch again for like these kind of sequences because this stuff, I, I don't I don't know. I, I what, what did you think? Like, did you did you enjoy it? Because I, I kind of felt like was this I'm glad uh, they don't stick around too long. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I don't. Yeah, I was like, I don't know if I need all this stuff, but maybe it's because I'm not like a good film watcher. <laughs> No, you know, I, I think it does help, but this is the kind of thing where it's like, well, if they trim those, maybe you bring it in under two hours and it totally. just zips along a little faster. You know, yeah. who, who can say? Yeah. A short while later, Starling gets a call from Crawford who says, hey, Miggs swallowed his own tongue after being tortured by Lecter. Anyway, any progress on Moffat? Yeah, which then uh, my girlfriend and I tried swallowing our own tongues for the next like 10 minutes and was like, I don't know how I don't know how you do that. Is he so, so desperate to get away? That's actually like kind of impressive. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's tracked the clues to the yourself storage where Miss Moffat paid for a unit in full in advance for 30 years. And no one's been there since 1980. And she goes to have a look around. She has to use a carjack to get the door open. And even then, it only opens so much. She has to sort of slide in on her back. So funny when she smartly stops to give the guy the card and say, like, if this falls, please call to help. And her delivery with the little nervous laugh is so funny. Yeah, it was awesome. This was another like pre-cell phones. That joke that wouldn't happen today that I thought was awesome. And the... Chekhov's blood with uh, her snagging her leg here is insane. Yeah. yeah, this whole sequence is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. She she scratches her leg on the way in, like you say, and uh, she does get in. And it is strange. Mannequins and taxidermy and a horse skull and even a whole hearse. And when she inspects this hearse, there's a scary mannequin, uh, presumably supposed to be Miss Moffat, and a book, which she flips through. But also, as she reveals, a head in a jar. Yeah. Spooky. Spooky. Uh, That's actually the baby in a jar from Nightmare Alley, all grown up. (laughs) (laughs) Aw, it says that on tape, like on the bottom of the jar. (laughs) Nightmare Alley baby, all grown up. It's like Rugrats all grown up. Yeah. (laughs) She reads it out loud like, what does this mean? (laughs) Just a little something for the audience. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And based on the facial hair, it's a man's head, though there is lipstick and eyeshadow applied too. And she realizes that this was Lecter's rental all along. Miss Heather Moffat is an anagram for Miss the rest of me. And she goes directly to confront him. I feel like anagrams kind of died down (laughs) at a certain point. Like, I don't know. They seemed pretty huge in the 80s and 90s. And I think at a certain point, we kind of stopped the like, move the letters around. And that's (laughs) what it means. Yeah. I mean, hey, it was really peaking here with you have Dracula. Of course, yeah. Alucard, yeah. Dracula. Uh-huh. Uh, let's bring back anagrams for like the next Marvel movie. There you go. Rubes and anagrams. Rubes, yeah. <laughs> he called me a burr. What does it mean? <laughs> I'm a rube. <laughs> he offers her a towel to dry off. Again, that courtesy is important to him. And he reveals that he knows about the cut, which does shake her. Chekhov's cut, as you say. Uh-huh. It's worth pointing out that his hypnotic qualities have convinced her that it's safe for her to be near the glass, despite everyone's warnings immediately not to do that. I was also intrigued that like he 
they allow him to have his own towel in there too of like could he maybe it's like small enough or like the thread count is weak small enough that like he couldn't like hang himself with yeah. it but you think with think like a suicide risk yeah i guess yeah because w- when that came out i was like interesting that he <laughs> you'd think that they would give him like absolutely nothing <laughs> yeah. but i don't know yeah especially he's already being punished because of migs they were really uh yeah they're like and you can keep your towels and- <laughs> He wants the Buffalo Bill case file, but she wants to know about the head in a jar. Benjamin Raspail. Lecter says, I didn't kill him. I just tucked him away as I found him after he missed three appointments. And that maybe it's a fledgling killer's first attempt at transformation. Hmm. (laughs) Big wink to the camera. Yeah. Lecter continues to try and get under her skin. And when she says, uh, you know, talk about this, the transformation, the fledgling killer, he goes, but we're going to have to trade. I know they won't let me out, so I want a damn view with a tree or water even away from Chilton. In exchange, I'll give you a profile on Buffalo Bill. And uh, he even knows who it is, but all good things to those who wait. He says, I've waited, and how long will you wait while Bill searches for his next special lady? Mm-hmm. Is, this the cu- is this the cut to American Girl by oh, Tom yeah. Petty? Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> Again, it's like... Uh, that it feels edit, a yeah. little. It feels a little like maybe it could be corny. It's a little on the nose to like cut to her blasting American girl. Yeah, but it really. Works I like it. In the mo- exactly. It yeah. does, it really it works in the movie. The deft hand that he is deploying these moments with help to prevent it from not feeling schmaltzy. And to me, it kind of shows like we're moving along. Like we're not going to do some weird unnecessary B story that like doesn't really pay off or like. <laughs> That's why I was a little cautious about like the flashback to like the dad's funeral. I mean, it kind of pays off in its own ways, but I don't know, like these kind of like edits like this just to me are like remind me as a viewer that like we're we're going full speed ahead. Hell yeah. And uh, she pulls into her apartment complex in Memphis, Tennessee, but she's not alone. We see some very creepy blue eyes watching her and with uh, enough prep and planning to have brought night vision goggles. Yes. There's a cute cat in the window meowing at her. Mm-hmm. but she sees a guy with a cast on struggling to load a chair into the back of a van and she gets distracted, finally offering to help. It's really painful that like, she knows she shouldn't. She's like, this is dangerous. I should yeah. not offer to help this guy. Yeah. But she waits and mulls it over for a second before her own good nature regretfully wins out. It's super tense. Yeah. And I was thinking about the, I mean, it's so obvious now and you're also watching a horror movie. So you're just like, don't do that. Like everything's obvious <laughs> when you're watching this movie. But when he says like, get in the, get in the car basically. And she does. I'm like, how does this happen? And I wonder if it's like, he says it like politely, but forcefully in a way that you, you can kind of feel like it's uncomfortable enough where you're maybe like, oh, uh, OK, because you're nervous that this person might like yell at you. Yeah. And then that's where it happens. <laughs> if obviously. only it was just yelling. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, he like swings out and he pushes the thing towards her. So she doesn't have a lot of room to go. It's very well thought out. It's really yeah. scary. And it's and horrifying. Awful. Pretty nuts. Yeah. And uh, as she helps, he asks if she's a size 14. And when she says, huh, he beats her unconscious with the cast. Mm -hmm. He checks the size, sees it's a 14 and says, good. Then cuts her out of her dress, ogles her bare back like only a killer who makes skin suits can chucks the dress out of the van and drives away. Which is kind of odd that to me that he threw the dress out because that's kind of like clues to me almost like of like, all right, we're just going to leave that where. 
obviously someone would probably mm-hmm. find that later. I don't know. Yeah, I uh, I would say that that was probably a little strange. I will say also, though, that DNA evidence was still pretty new. I think it started in like 87. Yeah. Uh, so maybe he was like, I don't know about Fuck this it. DNA shit. Yeah. He's a strange guy. I'll give him that. He's a strange guy. You can quote <laughs> me on true. that, everyone. Coming out strong against yeah. Buffalo Bill. Pretty strange. Kevin Bartelt. <laughs> That's the other poster for this movie. Yep. It's me. <laughs> 11 posters from Silence of the Lambs and me on this podcast. Saying saying about. About Buffaloville. Pretty strange. Yeah. Now, Starling is once again pulled out of class because they found a girl's body and they want her to come out to West Virginia with them to check it out. And they say he's been keeping them alive for three days without really doing anything, then shoots them, skins them and dumps them. And the FBI can't figure out what the deal is with this three days. And she's flipping through the case files and immediately we're greeted by a nasty ass photo of some skinned feet. Awful. Yeah. Gross. It's uh, also kind of a brutal comparison to see these mutilated corpses and then flip to the high school yearbook photo. It's a really interesting dynamic that he creates there. Yeah. I think going back to what you were saying of like the humanity of these people, Mm -hmm. of the victims, like kind of coming back to that these are people and not just like we blew up 200 people. Anyway, the next scene (laughs) we cut to. Yeah. Definitely. I, you know, you see it again when when she walks into the room and it takes time to really like linger on the photos of the woman alive and with her family. And, and uh, it's, it's a really nice touch. Yeah, for sure. She built a profile of Buffalo Bill based on the evidence, which Crawford is impressed by. And we know to be accurate, having gotten an eyeful of Ted Levine just moments ago. Mm-hmm. And he also says he's considering the offer from uh, Lecter, but won't pull the trigger just yet. And importantly, we also see the first bit of resentment from Clarice for the way she was used to get Lecter's help. And then he does it again to bend the ear of the local PD, ditching her in a room full of staring men. Yeah. And to your point, I think that uh, we we kind of touched on this already, but the cinematography does such a great job of putting you in her shoes and feeling how uncomfortable she is. 100%. And then it's interesting that once you've built the empathy for the good guy, Mm -hmm. which is easy to do. The movie sort of asks you to extend that empathy to the killer that feels uncomfortable in his body 24 seven, which is difficult to do. You know, both of these characters feel uncomfortable in their environment. And for Clarice, she can escape in some ways Mm -hmm. for, for, for gum. There is no escape. Yeah. Yeah. So just a, just an interesting sort of uh, parallel between the two. And like later when, they're in the car and uh, Scott Glenn is like asleep for some reason. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, you ha- you understood why I had to do that. And she's like, well, people take what you say seriously and it, it matters what you say. That yeah. felt like pretty pointed. Yeah. We are what we pretend to be. They said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In order to get away from these leers, this is when Clarice has the flashback where she goes to check in on the mourners and she sees her father being laid to rest. But uh, they go to do the autopsy and Clarice takes charge to kick out all the cops, which again impresses Crawford. Mm -hmm. And there's a cool moment where as ostracized as she is, she does become part of the ritual as they all toss around the menthol rub to stop the smell of the body. Yeah, I asked my girlfriend, I was like, were were masks not invented at, in 91? <laughs> and she's like, nope, not until COVID. That's right. First time. Of, very dramatic where they're like, you know, have a close up shot of them passing it around and stuff. Mm. I was like, wow, this is, yeah, like you said, it's very meaningful. ritualistic. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Clarice examines the body and based on the photograph of the teeth, notices something in the throat 
Uh, it's a cocoon and large enough that it wouldn't have gotten there on its own. It had to have been shoved in. A clue. Yeah. How did she? How did she spot that? So there was black on the tongue, and she was like, "Something is lodged." Bruising. Like they were like, "Yeah, uh, yeah." Interesting. And uh, the new patterns of skin removal are also a clue. Yes. This is why I wouldn't be uh, good at this. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I don't know, guys. I don't know. They cut up the skin. Weird. Yeah. Looks <laughs> fucked up. This guy's pretty strange. They'd be like, you're fired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty strange. Uh, we get some nice shots of uh, dinosaurs as Clarice is at the museum to talk to some bug boys about the cocoon. Yeah. Sure. Classic weird bug boys. Uh huh. Dr. Bug boy hits on Clarice while non PhD bug boy dissects. Do you like cheeseburgers and beer? <laughs> and then she kind of like is like, are you hitting on me? And then they like move along a little bit with it. Yeah. She got lucky that they they figured out what kind of moth it was. Right yeah. There. Such, such an obnoxious. There's so much weird like hitting on Clarice in this too of just like the, the way men are like asking her questions. Just like, ugh. yeah, you know, the same way that Lecter gets under your skin. So too does uh, pretty much everybody. Yeah. Creeps. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so first off, this dissection, very gross with all the goo. Yeah. But um, it's also a death's head moth, they discover. Very mm-hmm. neat, big honking skull on the back. Very yeah. distinct on this one. Yeah. <laughs> Jackpot. It, uh, it was the same moth wrangler as Creepshow uh, for the movie, I, I noticed. <laughs> and it's actually not a death's head moth because they weren't readily available at the time. So he painted a press-on fingernail and used a special glue to give it a little costume. Aw. Cute little moth costume. Even the moths got costumes. My friend pausing it. Look at this shot. I'm like, (laughs) what? How did you notice this? (laughs) This bug is of note, not just for poetic metaphor reasons that Bill is banking on, but also because they're native to Asia and they'd have to be raised from imported eggs to have them here. And based on the size, they were well-loved. So this is a, a distinct thing for, for, for our killer. Yeah, as kind of an idiot, I started to uh, lose interest <laughs> with the whole, like, the uh, etymology or, like, the history of these bugs. I was like, all right. Uh, let's go, let's go. Yeah, how, how are we doing on runtime? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is when we first get our glimpse of Gum's house. It cuts, and, and they, they get you right back in because yeah. you get to take on a real tour of this place. Yep. There's bugs of all shapes, sizes, and colors around, a plate full of knives, a dressing room with some flamboyant outfits. And yeah. Finally comes to rest on our boy, James nude and sewing away at his desk. We also hear the screaming of the kidnapped girl, though the music is loud enough to drown her out. And around bill is some very interesting decor. The set decoration was very purposeful and very interesting in this. First of all, there's a pinups and motorcycles calendar. There's a dark drawing of a humanoid with wings. It's like kind of Mothman looking drawings. Yeah. It's nuts. He's also got the curing leather from his last victim nailed to a board, which is grody. Yeah. And Demi points out a Polaroid of gum with a stripper, a way of signaling both his fondness for skin and muddying the waters about his sexuality, further indicating the way that he has tried on several different identities. Yep. The transformation. Uh, It turns out that this girl is Catherine Martin, daughter of Senator Ruth Martin. So the pressure is on. Like we said, even the president is worried. Yeah. And Senator Ruth gives a speech in which she says Catherine's name a lot. And they show young photos of her trying to make him see her not as an object. So he takes pity. Distinct counterpoint to the direct efforts in the other direction where Bill calls her it to dehumanize her. This also is kind of a commentary on what Demi is doing in, in the efforts to humanize our victims here. 
uh, and and really show us photos of them and call them by their names very and clarice is like this is genius blah 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 (laughs) but i also i asked my girlfriend last night would this happen like would a news program show like childhood photos like for the serial killer to hopefully see (laughs) And she said, maybe if it was a senator's daughter, like, I, I don't think they're going to do this for, like, anyone, mm-hmm. but, like, but I don't know. I don't know if I've ever seen, like, maybe I have, of just, like, I don't know. It was very jarring to me to see, like, and here's all the photos and a message from the mom. I was like, wow, <laughs> I don't, maybe maybe that does happen, I, and I don't know, but I, I, I kind of was like, is, does this, is this common? I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Time for more Lecter. Yeah. And Chilton is pissed. Yep. You keep interviewing him and not telling me anything. He's my patient. I have rights. So funny. (laughs) And Starling has returned with an offer. He'll get his transfer and he'll get his view and he'll even get to spend a week on the beaches of Plum Island every year. As long as his help leads to the rescue of Catherine Martin alive. Otherwise, he gets zilch. He agrees on one condition that for every question he answers, she'll answer a question about herself in return. TikTok Mm -hmm. Clarice. Mm -hmm. First question. Worst memory of childhood. Really? Jumping in. Yep. (laughs) No icebreakers here. No. (laughs) She says it was the death of her father at 10. He surprised two burglars who shot him and he lingered for a month. And Lecter continues to be impressed with her frankness. Yeah. He gets a little more info from her about the victims and answers her question. What's the deal with the moths after they find another one in Ross Bale's head as well? He says it represents changing into beauty. Classic bug metaphor, Clarice. I feel like she probably could have guessed that one and gotten another question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She says, hey, there's no correlation between trans people and violence. And he says, clever girl, you're close. When she presses him, though, he asks his next question. What happened to you after you were orphaned? Mm -hmm. She says, I went to live on a sheep and horse ranch in Montana with my mother's cousin but I was only there for two months before running away. Not because the rancher is a bad guy, but when he asks why then, she says, ah, 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 it's my turn. And now that she's sort of getting the game, he leans in a bit and he reflects in the glass partially transposed onto her. Mm-hmm. And there's a few ways you can kind of be like, oh, he's she's becoming more devious like him. But also they warned her so many times not to answer personal questions because that's how he gets in your head. And here he's literally shown that way as partially inside of her head. Yeah. But I also feel like he's so clearly using this as like collateral. Mm -hmm. If you share stuff with me, I'll give you more information to help you. I don't know. Again, this is probably why I wouldn't be good in the FBI because I'd be like, sure, you can ask me. I don't really care like enough about my boring upbringing to tell you like I don't have things I need to like hide so if that makes you feel better about yourself and you're gonna tell me more clues sure uh I'm an open book dude but that that's why they'd pull me aside and be like Kevin you you can't first of all something clearly happened to that person that died your autopsy was yeah seems fucked up and now you're just telling Hannibal Lecter anything he asks (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, Clarice got really unlucky that she happens to have this awful trauma. In her yeah. Past. Yeah. He explains that Bill is not trans, even though he thinks he is, and that this is one of several identities that he had tried on trying to find something that felt right. Mm-hmm. It's more about not being himself than actually being a woman. At the moment, he just views beautiful woman as the furthest point from him on the spectrum. Yeah, this obviously 
sparked some controversy and and then and you can correct me if i'm wrong but this got some backlash and then jonathan demi said like i didn't know that trans people were so underrepresented in film and so then he made philadelphia (laughs) (laughs) yeah he said he said something about the way that gay people especially in horror movies tend to be very negatively portrayed they usually have some kind of psychosis or something in these movies and so i guess that was sort of his way of like apologizing and being like Hey, uh, there are normal gay people. It turns out too. So yeah, he, he learned he learned that. Yeah, it was uh, definitely struck me on this viewing of like. Unfortunately, I'm sure because this movie is such a hit that, especially in the '90s, a lot of people probably saw this movie and were like, "Yikes!" Like in a bad way about trans people, and that kind of yeah. bumped that obviously bumped me out. But yeah, I don't know. It was kind of fascinating, like watching it with that, with that lens, especially and despite all of the efforts to be like, no, he's not trans. He's yeah. not gay. He's just like looking for something to fill this pit. Yeah. It does feel like a lot of people probably would uh, not really get that level of media literacy to yes. in, in, in bring that part into <laughs> their interpretation. Yeah, because then they'll just like idiots just equate trans people or the LGBT community with Buffalo Bill. Right. Which is not correct. And people shouldn't do that. Yes. Hey, you heard it here first. Don't do that, please. (laughs) Stop the presses. (laughs) We've weighed in. Mm -hmm. Lecter says the way to catch him is that at the time, there were only three major hospitals that did sexual reassignment surgery. So check the rejections based on childhood pathology, some violence that he experienced in his youth that made him hate his identity and led him down this path. Yeah. Chilton, it turns out, has the place bugged and he's listening to this. Chilton. Chilton. Hard cut to Bill looking over the edge of the pit and holding his dog. Amazing shot. Very famous. Yeah. Puts the lotion on the skin or else he gets the hose again. Mm -hmm. He threatens over her pleading. Yeah. So she does. He sends down the basket for her to return the lotion. And she begs him to let her go home. I want to see my mommy, she says. And uh, his voice quavers a bit as he fights against the pity. Put the fucking lotion in the bag. Yeah, just kind of screams. Yeah, this is horrifying. Good, uh, creepy shit. I don't know. Ted, Ted killing it there. Yeah. And I mean, as the light on the basket illuminates the walls of the pit, the bloody handprints all over and even a fingernail still embedded in the wall is just truly grody shit. Yep. (laughs) Yep. And she screams. She screams. And it's interesting because this actually works against her uh, because it's mindless, animalistic. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill doesn't care again. Now she is dehumanizing herself in this way. And so he screams back at her mockingly. Yeah. Chilton is casually mocking Lecter as well mm-hmm. and says they scammed him that there is no deal. But there could why, be. why mock a serial killer? You have so much faith. And the government and the FBI (laughs) and humanity that surely this will never come back to me. To bite him in the ass, literally. Yeah, literally. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he says there could be a deal. I went and got it done myself with a few provisions for myself, but you got to name names. Hannibal is staring fixated at a gold pen, but finally gives the name Lewis, saying the rest gets told to the senator in Tennessee. And I have a few conditions. How does he grab the pen? I think it was like it tucked under his like stuff. And so when Chilton, when he gives the name, Chilton is like, ah, finally. And he gets distracted. I'm not totally sure. But uh, he is, 
I, I mean, to be honest, I kind of like that we don't see him grabbing it because it's obviously implied that he gets it. But he is strapped in a way that he uh, cannot move an inch. And this pen looks to be four feet away from him. <laughs> Maybe benefit of a doubt when he's like wheeled, he's able to like somehow grab it. But dude Or maybe is when strapped. they said he was like a reptile. He has a crazy long tongue. Yep, and uh, chameleoned it. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. chameleon twist and 64'd it. Wow, we figured it out. Yep. The senator is pissed about Crawford making the phony deal. So someone from the attorney general's office is taking over the case, and she meets with Lecter at the Memphis International Airport. Uh, Very famous look here with the straight jacket and the half hockey mask created by Ed Coverley, who makes gold masks for, um, for the NHL as well. And also, like, they chose not to do the traditional, like, orange jumpsuit because I thought the white was more distressing, which I agree. Way better. Yeah. Yeah. Chilton's pen seems to be missing when he goes to sign the transfer papers. How about that? Yeah. A little. I think it was, like, two seconds too long where (laughs) he's like... He didn't need to say, where is my pen? Like the cop, I think I wish it was just like, he's looking for his pen. He can't see it. And the cop hands him one, but it it was just like, where the heck is my, and just, just look at the camera and say like, I think this guy's got it. It was a little too much for me. It is funny. I will say Chilton uses that pen for emphasis a lot. He like points at Clarice with it a bunch. So it does for me kind of feel like, well, this is like an extension of him to him. He holds on to it personally, yeah. but it is, it is long. <laughs> it makes yeah. me laugh though. Lecter and the Senator are finally face to face and Chilton is so proud, like a kid at show and tell again, this lack of humanization and Lecter is very charming to start. And he says that it's Lewis friend who's Benjamin Rothpale's lover, but he'd murdered, murdered a transient and done things with her skin, which frightened Benjamin. And this is where Lecter starts to drop the act a little bit. He starts to taunt the senator about the death of her daughter while also giving new information about Lewis friend to keep them there. Oh, by the way, not I don't know. I think they could have had seven uh, to eight hundred more cops and military guys there. At this like airport hangar, truly like looked like uh, Coachella, like the amount of (laughs) cops that were there was just like it's one guy that is has straps from head to toe and a mask, maybe a couple cops. But the fact that they I don't know, uh, it's not enough later. Casting had a field true, but casting really had a field day with this one of like, all right, and you three dozen are going to be over here. Background extras are eating today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They did. <laughs> yeah, he he's brutal to this poor woman and he caps it off with, oh, and Senator, love your suit. Oh, yeah, that was great. Very uncomfortable discussion. Uh, we don't need to get into, but it was just like, ugh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. Like I said, it's interesting to see this dropped. You know, so far he has been the sympathetic one. Like, sure, he's a killer cannibal, but he's polite yeah. and an intellectual and he took mm-hmm. out Migs. And then this poor woman is dealing with the, like the kidnapping of her child and he's like, <laughs> she fucking like toughened up your nipples. Yeah, shit. exactly. Well, your nipples like titillate when you see her corpse, basically. Yeah. It was like, Jesus. Fucked up. Mm-hmm. Starling goes to check in with Lecter again at his new cell. People are freaked out. They're getting death threats. Chilton is doing press conferences. One of the guys thinks Hannibal is a vampire, which made me laugh. <laughs> that was kind of fun. Quite a change of scenery, too. You know, Clarice Love uh, it. brings him his art and he's touched. So he talks with her, but he's in this, like you said, birdcage kind of. Uh, it's lit so well, too. Like this, this whole sequence is fantastic to me. Yeah. And he's uh, oozing evil charisma still. And yeah. uh, she angrily confronts him about the name. 
Lewis friend is another anagram for iron sulfide fool's gold. You got to get more fun out of life. Clarice. He yeah. Says. More anagrams. You rube. <laughs> Everything is in the case files. Everything is true to its nature. What does he do? Killing women is incidental. What need does he serve with it? He feeds his coveting, the coveting of things he sees every day, he says. Yeah. But before he'll answer any more questions, she'll have to answer questions again since she's got no more vacations to sell him, he says. Mm -hmm. Why did you leave the ranch? And this is where we finally get the story. And who boy. Yeah. The Silence of the Lambs monologue, basically. (laughs) Which I love that they don't say explicitly silence the lambs, right? They do the opposite. Yeah. The, he says the screaming of the lambs. Yeah. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Classic Hannibal Lecter. He, he's a rogue. He's a rogue mm. and she's a rube. Yep. Rogue meets rube. <laughs> That's my Ebert review. <laughs> <laughs> well, she tells him of the time she woke up and she heard screaming, which upon investigation was the slaughtering of the spring lambs. And it's funny to me that shot reverse shot is usually the least interesting camera stuff possible for dialogue. Yeah. But the camera keeps getting closer on their faces and Lecter is staring so intently that it really does become a a tool to create horror instead of boring. Yeah. Like we were saying it like the first time they meet, like this to me is scarier than any of the gore in the movie. Yeah. And uh, she was so scared, but she persisted and she decided to free them. But they wouldn't run, so she grabbed a lamb. If she could just save one, she says, yeah. she ran away. Easy to extrapolate this into a formative experience that drives Clarice still as an agent and might even be what makes her good at it. And as Demi was saying about the humanity of the movie, this is sort of the thesis statement. A lot of animal stuff in this. We have lambs, moths, butterflies, like yeah. centipedes and stuff. Uh, sure. Got a freaking a zoo. Dog. We got a zoo in this. Precious. Yeah, dog, cat, two cats. He's like a snake. Yeah, he's like a snake. Damn. Wow. A true menagerie. Should have called this We Bought a Zoo. (laughs) I I think that's available. Yep. (laughs) Lecter can obviously make this connection as well. And Clarice says she was found just a few miles from the ranch and sent to an orphanage with the lamb sent back to the slaughter. Clarice, do you still wake up to hear the screaming? Do you think Catherine saving her will stop the, the screaming and silence the lambs? I don't know, doctor. Yeah, I love that it's I don't know. I was kind of like when that happened, I was like, I I don't remember what she said. And I was like, please don't say yes. Like, that would be kind of a boring reveal of like, yeah, this will solve it for me. I'd be like, wow, you're very flawed. But I thought I don't know was like so real and like relatable. I love when they show a a protagonist just say like, yeah, I I don't know. Uh, It'd be great. But I'm not. I don't know. It just was. I hate omniscient omnipotent like characters like that that are just like i know the answer to everything i'm i'm all knowing i know it all and uh you know what's the alternative like just be like oh well fuck it i just i guess i don't care about Catherine anymore (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) dr chilton arrives just in time to stop him from giving her the name Mm -hmm. and he kicks her out but first lector manages to give her the case file back and when he does brushes her hand with his finger oh yeah she flies back to D.C. feeling defeated while Lecter draws her in a very Madonna-esque pose holding a lamb. Mm-hmm. And the cops come to bring Lecter dinner. And this is where Lecter affects his escape. He regurgitates lamb the- chops. <laughs> wow, I didn't even notice. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was. I think you're right. And uh, he regurgitates a bit of the pen and he picks his handcuffs, which he tricks one of the cops into. And then he bites the other one in the face and for a long time sprays him in the face with mace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One one thousand, two one thousand, three. It's like you got him, man. 
<laughs> I've heard assault in the wound, but mace in the wound. Yeah, that was a lot. Also, I'd be nervous that it'd be spraying him like a little backlash hit me in the <laughs> get me. Very true. Yeah, he just he like falls down and his whole plan is ruined because yeah, got a little bit. Ah, shit. <laughs> Movie ends. There's um, some blood spray as he beats the other guy with a nightstick, but he's totally chill the whole time. He literally stops to wave his hand to the classical music playing diegetically. We definitely see that 85 beats per minute heart rate. Yeah. And he takes the elevator up to five and the cops are like, what the heck? Especially when there's gunshots and the elevator stops back on three. God, these cops reactions were so funny to me. I'm just like, (laughs) what the shit is that? Fuck, it's coming down. Yeah, they are freaking out in a way that i guess makes sense but just their deliveries were very entertaining and the way they wave around guns and like use them as like little pointers of like go over there and stuff i said to leah i was like there this dude is holding a gun like to his eye at one point like it is so the barrel is so close to his own skull they're they're holding with like one hand too clarice kind of does this at the end of the movie where i'm just like I don't know. I've never held a gun before, but just I, I would assume you would maybe do two hands yeah, with the thing that at kills least Clarice people. Is still a student. She has a little bit. Of That's true. Room yeah. Here. Yeah. But, uh, these guys have no such. Uh, yeah. The cops are running around like no holding it like it's a little pen, like a ruler. <laughs> yeah. And also worth noting, there is one other woman cop here in this uh, yes. group, someone who knows how Clarice feels. Yep. Yeah, they all head up there to five and and they're greeted by a truly grotesque display. This is the snapshot from hell that I mentioned at the beginning where Boyle is chained to the cage, arms wide and a banner draped like wings with his gut cut open too. How did he have the time to do this? Like the ribbons are up and stuff too. It was like this. This would have taken a little bit of time. Yeah, I I think that he did all that before he started the elevator going and we just cut felt like we did a little jump. Yeah, so he uh, that makes sense that economy this is the one time where i was like i actually kind of would have liked to see him setting yeah kind of like going the like okay a little to the left if i move it over here it keeps slumping down he's like Uh come on head up yeah (laughs) pembry is alive as well but only just Uh, our friend who asked about lector's vampirism tries to keep him holding on but has a hard time looking at him Mm -hmm. and they take pembry in the down in the elevator and it looks like they have Lecter trapped on the roof of the elevator when the blood starts dripping. And and there is a body up there in Lecter's uniform, but no movement when they shoot the leg. Okay, shout out to this cop who shoots like when he goes shoot the leg i'm like that is like a 75 foot shot with a little dinky pistol weird angle and and my man um, (laughs) nails the leg if i was the other cop i'd be like nice shot (laughs) give him a little high five good work yeah nice nice job man there's no response so the swat team heads in to find pembry with no face yeah disgusting what a reveal when he sits up in the ambulance and tears off the mask amazing incredible also, don't you think the cops would be so yeah, amazing reveal. One of one of the best reveals in in film. The fact that he's laying there though before that, when he's like on the hardwood floor and they see he has like lacerations on his face. I'm just kind of surprised that the cops don't like notice at all or just like obviously they see he has cuts on his face, but I just think I don't know if if I'm the cops and I'm looking at this guy's face, I feel like you would notice something is off more than just like, oh, his face is kind of fucked up. It's like he's wearing a mask. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it just it was a obviously the whole thing is nuts, but 
<laughs> if like six cops are looking at you and like hyper intense, I feel like one person might go like, wait, what's up with his face? Yeah, I think it is helped by having the guy who was like, is he a vampire? <laughs> like, yeah, be the one who is looking at his face. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it, you know, I guess it's kind of uh, you have to just be like, eh, I guess suspension of disbelief for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lecter is on the run. He got a tourist too for money and a passport. And Clarice is pissed, but more about the case not looking good than Lecter. He won't come after me. He'd consider it rude. How did Lecter get the passport and money? Oh, is this the... He just killed a tourist. Oh, gotcha. That's they just right. Say they, it. they just like verbalize it. They say, yeah. oh yeah, he could be anywhere. Yeah, that's right. She and her friend find a teasing note on the map of the victim's locations from the handman where he says, isn't it weird how random these are? It's almost less likely to be perfectly random than someone trying to make it seem random. Okay, bye. I could have watched more scenes with them together. Yeah, I thought they kind of had a fun dynamic and also have like the most wild clothes on in that sequence where it almost looked like pajamas but not but i was like this is cool a lot of great 90s wardrobe in this definitely and imagine how uh, you know awful the pressure that she feels because she's a black woman in the fbi yeah clarice is at least white yeah she's still feeling this pressure yeah let's see more of them yeah silence of the lambs too i was thinking that i was like they had to get offered a sequel right like there's no way this movie red dragon uh oh that's you're right you're right right. i'm sorry i mean well but But i was kind of expecting a literal like silence of the lambs part two you know Mm, yeah but yeah you're right they had it but they just didn't call it silence of the lambs (laughs) two the other lambs the other lambs they're back and louder than ever This does click, though, with what he had said about starting to covet the things you see every day. And Clarice realizes he knew the first girl. And so off they go to Belvedere, Ohio. Again, we see the humanism and the way it's affected the town. They really take the time to make it feel melancholy. And when we meet Mr. Bimmel, he just seems exhausted, less sad than just drained entirely. Yeah. Clarice goes to examine the room and it seems pretty normal. Lots of photos of her being full of life, like I said, but she checks a small jewelry box and hidden in top of that is more photos, photos of her semi-nude and looking sort of embarrassed. How did she immediately spot those photos? There wasn't even like a fold behind that little jewelry box that it was like, wait a second, what's this? She just immediately <laughs> ripped it off and knew. Maybe that was like a common thing. I think it also could be like her unique perspective as a woman. This is something that a man wouldn't have known about. Or it didn't work out and she has to go explain to the father, like, sorry, I destroyed your daughter's precious heirloom. Yeah. And also she just kind of like sets it there. Like if I did that, I would at least like put it back and hide it. She just kind of <laughs> is like, wow, look at this. And then look just leaves it there. Yeah. Look at these nude photos and partially oh, nude photos. And then just, in. yeah. And sees these anyway, off to leave. <laughs> she also checks the closet and finds patterns similar to the skin taken off the West Virginia woman. And she realizes that the killer can sew and he's making himself a human suit. Yeah. Um, another cat. I was like, is this the same cat from the senator's daughter? And my girlfriend was like, no, it's a different <laughs> person. <traveling> cat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she calls Crawford to tell him and he's like, Clarice, we got the guy's damn name from Johns Hopkins and a crate of Asian caterpillars with his name on it. Yeah. So you link him to Bimmel while we take him down so we can get him on murder charges and not just kidnapping. Great. Back at the pit, Catherine is pissed. She ties a bone to a string to lure Precious to the pit. 
So what's and the story with these bones? Did he give her like wings? I, yeah, I don't know. He, he she says like thanks for the scraps. <laughs> so, oh like, yeah, it's like yeah. What I guess he just chucked down a little bit of food. Yeah, poor thinking on his part. Yes, and she you know, precious is pretty cute, little little chubby little poodle. Although I tried not to consider if she's being used for disposal purposes, and that's why she's a little chubby. Yeah. Good point. While Catherine is doing this, it's kind of contrapositioned against flashes of gum putting on like war paint. He's applying lip gloss and jewelry, like some necklaces and a nipple ring. Yeah, this was not a real nipple, they said. (laughs) I was curious about that. He's also doing his affirmations where he goes, I'd fuck me. I'd fuck me so hard. (laughs) Yep. Famous scene. Interesting also that there are some match shots of like their mouths, for example, that kind of serve to have us compare the two people and his achieved femininity Mm -hmm. brought to a head as he tucks his penis between his legs and dances to Goodbye Horses by Q Lazarus, then spreads his wing or spreads spreads his wing, spreads his robe to be wings. (laughs) (laughs) Metamorphosis. Becomes the butterfly. He sure does. This was originally going to be less sensual, more raunchy, with Bob Seger's Her Strut being the song. No, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Good choice. And not doing that. Yeah. The FBI surrounds his house after he goes back to -to day-to-day form, and he removes the last bit of chrysalis from a moth. Again, sort of, we can interpret that as he's nearing completion. The barking of Precious draws his attention, though, and he heads back down to the pit, where Catherine's trapped work. Don't you hurt my dog. Yeah. He grabs a big gun and the FBI rings the, the biggest doorbell. gun in history under a <laughs> Nazi blanket, right? Nazi yeah. stitched blanket. Yeah. Swastika rather. The Nazi stuff is, you know, more of him searching for an identity. And uh, he, the, the FBI ring the doorbell and they say, all right, we're going in. Huge rug pull. Oh, I loved this. This was this was awesome. Incredible. The power of editing. Truly. Yeah. Wait, so this was nominated but lost, right? You yes, said yeah, to yeah. like JFK. Right. Right. They're at the wrong place. And Clarice, her investigation led her to his front door looking for Mrs. Lippman. The Lippmans don't live here anymore, he says, but she starts asking about Frederica Bimmel. And Gum has done such a good job of convincing himself of his own emerging power that he starts to taunt Clarice. He mocks Frederica's size. He invites Clarice in while he gets Mrs. Lippman's son's card. Could you, ima- ask- could you imagine the audience reaction when that reveal like switches and she answers the door? I love those videos where it's like the people reacting to the stupid marvel shit of like oh my god and the whole place is screaming like nuts i i do get chills thinking about like the audience reaction in 91 on valentine's day everyone's with their sweeties sweeties night out and everyone just screams at that reveal i think would be so cool the power of cinema yeah hell yeah that's george's poster quote (laughs) we all get one yeah (laughs) he asks if she's close and she says yes and it's like closer than you know clarice Mm-hmm. And she looks around. She spots a moth that lands on some. Fabric. She does say yes. I thought she said no. Does she say? She says yes? they are getting close. But then he goes, "Do they have any like fingerprints or description?" And that's when she. That's says no. got it. Got it. Got it. She starts to reach for her gun, and Gum starts to laugh. And I was reading about like the interpretation of like in this interview, he talks about why he was laughing there, and he says that in his mind, he's thinking, "Doesn't she know that he's transcended?" The idea of his being hurt by her, another it to him, is funny. And so that's sort of where that uh, character moment comes from, which I thought was interesting. That is interesting. And I love the subtlety of her like 
just kind of casually putting her hand down her shirt and then subtly like switching the safety off and then just like going. It was like so smooth and cool. I don't know. I mm-hmm. thought it was a smooth scene. Yeah, it was very cool. And he slips away from her and grabs his gun heading downstairs. Don't forget to check your corners this time, Clarice. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too. And I was kind of wondering if that would, because it almost doesn't, we'll get to it, but that almost doesn't pay off because she kind of yeah. just like freak turns around and shoots <laughs> in a way that like, I feel like if her off commanding officer saw that, he'd be like, what are you doing? That could have been anyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Well, it's hella scary down there. There's a ton of doors. He could be waiting for her anywhere. So many doors. They filmed this downstairs sequence in a 22-hour marathon of shooting, Ugh. which makes it feel a little more surreal and kind of lends a little bit of coherence to like why they move a little like loopily uh, yeah. in these sequences. Mm-hmm. She hears Catherine screaming as she starts to clear rooms. The first one we quiet, look at. quiet. <laughs> She's like, shut up, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's very funny. We get a look at the skin suit and it's disgusting glory. Mm-hmm. There's also some close-ups of those stripper photos that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And she finds the pit. Catherine is yelling at her. It's not dead yet. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Very alive. <laughs> Don't you leave me here, you fucking bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm working on it, please. <laughs> The basement continues to be creepy as the hunt goes on. She finds a room with a dissolving corpse in a tub, and suddenly the lights go out. Absolutely horrifying shot of the night vision goggles clearly watching her from close by. The sound of those night vision goggles turning on, too, is so good. I love yeah. it. Oh, man. Clarice fumbling blindly. She falls to the floor, but she refuses to give up as he advances slowly. And you're just so tense. You know, he's right behind her, he almost touches her. He cocks the gun, but she's quick as hell, and she spins and gets his ass. Yeah. And he crumbles, and finally, the terror of Buffalo Bill is over. But this sequence, I mean, when he's, like, reaching out and, like, almost touching her hair, the the taunting, the power that he feels in these moments. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's like a lion with its prey. Like, you know that it's not... At any moment, he could have just shot her, but the fact that he's, like fake petting her and stuff is like very you know uneasy super got him and i i kept wondering last night of like if you're in the complete dark and someone puts their hand one inch away from your face can you not sense that or feel like a hand that close to you i guess not but who knows i guess yeah. uh in in that specific situation maybe she's just so on edge that she's like, i don't know what the fuck is happening here but like what we were saying earlier i was kind of expecting some sort of payoff to that very opening sequence with the uh you need to check the corners of obviously she's in the dark so there's nothing she can do but i was almost expecting some sort of like in these moments, you need you need to lower your heart rate or something, and then she like breathes slower or something, and then is able yeah. to do it. But not really any sort of payoff pay in that regard. They they feign. She hears a gun cock and turns around and shoots as many times as she can and does it. Blah blah. Yeah, yeah it was kind of cool. And the reveal of him like with dead, covered in blood, and the night vision goggles on too. I was mm. like, wow, it's so crazy. Yeah, it looked really good. The FBI comes and they take away Catherine, who is still clutching Precious, which I thought was fun that they bonded there. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of wild to me that she would like want to still hold, keep that dog too. I might be like, "Uh, you guys can have the dog. (laughs) (laughs) I guess she's like, Precious didn't know. That's true. Yeah. 
Clarice also seems pretty upset too. But next we see her graduating and becoming a member of the FBI for real. Good for you, Clarice. Yeah. Crawford is watching approvingly as well. Mm -hmm. Special Agent Starling, call for you. She's stopped real quick by Crawford, who shakes her hand and says, I'm leaving, but good job. Your dad would be proud. And on the call, well, Clarice, have the lamb stopped screaming? Mr. Fedora himself. Wow. (laughs) He's styling and profiling. So here's here's my question to you. She looks at Scott Glenn and he's putting his gloves on and walks up the stairs. Does he know that it was Hannibal that called or did Hannibal like say to the person next to him on whatever island he is, hey, can you say ask for whatever, ask for Clarice? My, I, I obviously assume that he knows that it's Hannibal Lecter that escaped, but what do you think? I did also think it was him kind of knowing. I think that he... We've seen him be sort of like willing to bend the rules when it served him here and there. And I think yeah. that he does see that, oh, well, Hannibal helped us and she needed him and they have this connection there. So, uh, yeah, I think that he did know. And, you know, she says, I can't promise that I won't have to hunt you down. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it it's is a nice. So insane that how calm Scott Glenn is after that sequence. Because like, if you get a phone call and it's Hannibal Lecter and then he's like, let me speak to Clarice. The fact that he's like, okay, yeah. Like he's so (laughs) chill about the whole thing. My face would immediately give it away of like, so you have a phone. I would look so distressed and concerned. My first thought wouldn't be like, I'm going to leave. Okay. Have fun. (laughs) Have fun catching up with him. Scott Glenn's heart rate never went above 85. Yeah, truly. It looked like it. (laughs) But yeah, he, he asked, he says, I'm not going to hunt you down. So don't worry. Please don't hunt me either. Which he says, I can't promise that. And he says, okay, bye. I'm having an old friend for dinner. And he's following Dr. Chilton without a care in the world. Great little joke at the end to cut tension gives you permission to relax a little bit, but it's also very memorable. Just a yep. great finish. Amazing. So good. So Such a fun rewatch too. I really don't enjoy rewatching a lot of stuff, TV shows, movies, podcasts, but the ones that I do for me have such a staying power of like, there are... I think everyone has this example probably, but I think you should leave the Tim Tim Robinson sketch show. I've watched a dozen times and uh, Joe Perez show as well on Adult Swim because I truly find something new out of it every single time I watch it. And I've watched this three, maybe four times. And each time I've just like, God, this is, there's so much new information to consume or just to enjoy and and appreciate with each viewing. So good and so scary. Definitely. And now, Kevin, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. Okay. The fact that Hannibal Lecter calls Clarice a rube is enough to make anyone lose enough sleep that they... uh, Terrifying. Would be terrified for eternity. (laughs) I mean, I just think that the movie is incredible just outside of horror it's it's a it's a incredible movie it is so scary because it's based on reality like it's (laughs) it's based off of true stories and uh obviously like fabricated in parts but it is very uneasy i think it makes a lot of commentary about sexism and misogyny too and Jodie Foster is amazing like every actor in it 
to me is like a star. Like it's not a surprise to me that this movie was nominated and won so many awards. But the what is so unique and interesting about it to me is like we said a couple times, the scariest stuff to me is Hannibal Lecter talking to Clarice. The intensity and in what she does it, everything he's saying, his eye contact, the camera placement mm-hmm. is so powerfully disturbing that I'm not surprised that people still talk about this movie all the time 30 years later. Absolutely. Yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is so impactful while still being incredibly reserved and deliberate. You know, yeah. we've talked about the economy of the shots mm-hmm. so frequently, but I really think it does bear repeating that it is so well put together Everything feels like it is so deliberate and put into place exactly right that if you pulled any one of these Jenga pieces out, it could have collapsed so easily. But with Demi at the forefront holding these incredible performances together, I think that they do just such a great job. And the humanity of this movie, I think, is what makes it so great. You know, to your point, I really don't love true crime stuff or anything because it does feel sort of glib and glorifies a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this movie never feels tongue in cheek in that direction. There are moments of humor and moments of lightness, but it never feels like it's at the expense of the victims. Yeah. I think that that is really important for why this movie is so impactful. Yeah. All the moments of levity are like dad word play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The crew is fantastic. The costuming, the sweat drappers, the the yeah. uh, lighting is so fantastic all the way through. The editing, which we said, honestly, I think the editing in this is better than JFK. The composer, the, the score. Yeah. So for me, I would have given it that Oscar as well. Yeah. And it all comes together to create something that is even better than the sum of its parts. The best horror movie ever made signs of the lambs hell yeah kevin i want to thank you so much for coming on this episode i am sorry i kept you here for so long hey it's an amazing movie we had a lot to talk about no problem absolutely and and please tell the people where they can check out more of your work and and yeah all that jazz sure thanks again i am at kevin j bartelt on twitter and instagram like george said i work on a bunch of podcasts you can check out patreon.com slash the flagrant ones for all of our fun Hollywood handbook content on there. Best bargain in podcasting. Thank you. Seven bucks for all of those, all those shows. It's incredible. For shows five days a week. And you can check out Big Grande. Uh, we have a lot of content on biggrandewebsite.com. I work on Yo Is This Racist. You can go to suboptimalpods.com. And lastly, uh, the Action Boys, which I think if you enjoy this show, you will really enjoy the Action Boys podcast. Patreon.com slash Action Boys or actionboys.biz with a Z. There you go. Yeah, I co-sign all those recommendations. They're all fantastic. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, as far as my plugs, you can find me at Little Horror PHL. That username extends pretty much everywhere, but I'm mostly on Twitter. Uh, it does also extend to the Patreon. If you're enjoying the show, there are bonus episodes on there with nice. uh, all kinds of fun stuff. Branson Reese is coming back to talk about animated shorts from the 30s through the 50s, which will be a lot of fun. Cool. And uh, we're having our first live show wow. on April 8th at the Philadelphia Fan Expo. That is the like convention center Comic-Con that happens here in Philadelphia. And uh, we're going to be doing a live show there April 8th at 7.30 p.m. So if you're in town, and you're already interested in checking out the Comic-Con stuff, hey, come see 
the best little horror house that's in awesome Philly as well yeah very exciting congrats thank you and uh yeah th- that's pretty much it so uh do that stuff and have a good one bye bye <laughs>